We're like. Questions. So, okay, we're gonna do a little kirtan. Yes. <laughs> a little more, a um, little less dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm going to do for the prayer for Prabhupada. Uh, it actually, that's the melody they chose when George Harrison produced the Radha Krishna Temple album. Oh, wow. So George Harrison, and actually some of the other Beatles and Donovan and different people, they were all got together to make the, this Radha Krishna Temple album, and that's the melody they used for Prabhupada's Pranamma and I just thought it was really nice. So that's why I do it. <laughs> Yeah. 
Uh, little self-entertainment there. So, um, thank you all for coming. Uh, I thought I'd do something radical, and that is stay for now in Chapter One of the Bhagavad Gita. Because usually people just kind of, you know, as we explained last time, just kind of skim over it and get to the more philosophical part. So. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff you dig it out, including we talked today about Vedic uh, social philosophy and uh, 
Hare Krishna. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've thought about it, but I thought, yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you, Kumi. Thank you for hosting us all. You're a wonderful soul, as we all know. Thank you for coming. Blessing us with your presence. Oh. So, um, in chapter one of the Bhagavad Gita, chapter one, which um, the, the title in this BBT uh, edition is setting, Observing the Armies, also sometimes called Setting the Scene. So if you're reading the entire Mahabharata, which is perhaps the biggest book ever, certainly is the biggest epic ever written, uh, then when you read the first chapter of the Gita, nothing has changed really because it's in Sanskrit it's called itihasa, which means history. And the word itihasa is actually a compound word made of three elements, which I know you've all been losing sleep over. So, it's uh, iti means thus, and ha means in the past, and asa it was or it happened. Thus it happened in the past, and that's the word for history, itihasa. And so uh, we've been reading or hearing this great history of this dynastic struggle. One thing I should mention is that uh, this whole story in which we find the Bhagavad Gita the Mahabharata itself, the great history of which the Gita is the spiritual essence, it's tri, it's three-dimensional in the sense that uh, the events are taking place, but actually the ramifications and, and, uh, and, and, and in a sense what's really happening is taking place on three levels. Uh, the first level is simply it's an, it's an earthly story. It's, it's a history of things that happened on this planet with people who appeared to be human beings. I mean, some of them were actually human, others were um, actually came from other places. But in that sense, it's a human history. If you, if you look up Mahabharata and Encyclopedia Britannica or even Wikipedia, uh, you know, they'll tend to describe it as. A, an earthly history and the dynastic struggle between the Pandavas and the Kurus and so on and so forth. But of course, if you read the Mahabharata itself, which, you know, the unabridged edition, which about, you know, seven people currently living have done, because it's such a big book, then what we find is that uh, this, this great history, which culminates in the epic battle of Kurukshetra, really this world war at Kurukshetra. Um, Earth is just a surrogate battlefield. It's just a surrogate battlefield. In other words, let's say, for example, in World War II, uh, they were fighting really for control of the world between the, uh, you know, the Axis, sort of the, you know, the Nazis and, and, and all these other countries, Japan, and on the other side, you had the so-called free societies, but the, the actual battlefields were just little specific places. So a battle can take place somewhere, but consequences can be global or even more than global. 
So again, this great battle, not the only battle, but the epic battle where everything culminates and everything's going to be decided, took place at Kurukshetra in the uh, sort of the, in the Ganges, Gangetic Plains of North India, North Central India. But, but the consequences not only completely changed the earth, but the consequences were also uh, cosmic because many different forces in the universe met on this little planet to sort of, you know, have it out. Sort of like a cosmic version of gunfight at the OK Thorel. So, um, so the Earth was very much just a surrogate. It was just a battlefield for, and, and often very common way that in this ancient Sanskrit literature, they'll say it's everybody's involved, the whole universe. As they'll say, Triloki, that it's the three worlds. Because in this universe, there are lower planets, middle planets, and higher planets. Uh, lots of inhabited exoplanets. For example, just now, this year, they sent up this Webb telescope. And now they're seeing things they didn't know were there before. So in the same way, uh, the one thing that... The one thing that science, physical science, always brags about, and what should, and because, I mean, they brag about it, so it should humble them, but it, it doesn't, unfortunately. And that is what they always brag about is that unlike religions where they believe, well, we know the truth, it's a fixed truth, in science, we're always open to new understandings, new discoveries, and so on. So, um, but they should actually take that more seriously because our present picture of the universe is very different than the picture we had a hundred years ago. And that was very different than the picture we had a hundred years before that. And that was very different. So to say that, let's say a mystic spiritual text like the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, we can't take it seriously unless it conforms to the present beliefs of empirical science, the obvious question is, which beliefs? Are you talking about yesterday or today or tomorrow? In fact, it would be, at the present time, it would be ludicrous for, I mean, I'm not anti-science, but I love real science. I just don't love, like what's called in the dictionary, scientism. Scientism means a fanatical belief in the powers of physical science to explain everything as opposed to understanding that science is great in its domain. It's just like your neighbors are really nice in their house. If they invade your house, they're not nice. And so uh, science is learning now to become a good neighbor to other methods, other reliable, valid ways of understanding reality. There's, you know, they're kind of been humbled by all kinds of quantum physical headaches and things. But anyway, so and of course, most of the universe is dark matter, and they don't have the slightest idea what that is. So before we say, oh, these things must be mythology, just consider that most of the universe is made of something about which scientists say, I don't know, do you know? I don't know. So, and that's most of the universe. And even if we say that the smaller part of the universe that they do know, which is made of you know, what we call matter, there's another problem, and that is, they don't really know what matter is. This is the quantum physical problem. That uh, if you study quantum physics, what you find is 
Because it's actually based on an assumption. It's based on a sort of an epistemic assumption, which is not exactly true in every sense. Because it, it, in Sanskrit, we'll be back in the battlefield in just a minute. So in the, um, there are two Sanskrit words, Vyasa and Samasa. And of course, Vyasa is also the name of the person who divided the Veda and composed the Mahabharata and so on. But the word Vyasa is a title. It's not actually his, can't say Christian name. It's not actually his name, but, um, which is Dvaipayana. But Asa in Sanskrit means to place, to place. Uh, I mean, related actually to the word asana, which means to place yourself. And uh, anyway, enough. We'll go into all my historical grammar. So, English cognates. But so, um, so V in Sanskrit means away or separate. And the opposite of V is some. And uh, actually, we still have those two uh, prefixes, V and some, in many European languages. For example, if you know Italian, the way they say get out of here in Italian, they say via, via, which means like, you know, separate yourself from me, like get away, via. And so, and some, of course, which means together, it's the opposite we still have in English. It just went to Greek and had a little kind of facelift, phonetic facelift in Greece. So the S-A-N in Sanskrit became S-Y-N, soon, uh, which they Greeks pronounce soon, and we pronounce sin, like synthesis. So the synthesis is the together thesis, and, the, and so that sin we have, symbiotic, sin this, sin that, uh, is Sanskrit S-A-M, Sankirtan, and uh, the together kirtan, Sankirtan. Anyway, little linguistic interlude there, but so vyasa or vyasa means to place apart, to separate. And samasa means to take, put things together. So of course these words are used in different ways, but in terms of how you know, like different ways that you can get knowledge, um, vyasa means analytic knowledge. And, and that's what science does. They try to break things down into the smallest pieces. Like, okay, we now have an atom, but can we separate any particles? Yeah, yeah, okay, let's go for the neuron, the proton, the electron. Hey, you know, don't stop there. Then you get quarks and all these, you know, they think of weird names. And then you get to the point where we don't, you know, we can't claim this is the fundamental particle, but we don't know what's smaller. So, so that's the asset. So the whole, the whole thrust of the, uh, of the empirical way of knowing things tends to be uh, separating things into smaller and smaller pieces so that biology reduces down to chemistry, chemistry is reduced to physics, physics is reduced to confusion. Anyway, so, so the point is that um, they don't really know what matter is made of. So the universe is, as, as far as they know now, they have two things, you know, dark matter and regular matter neither of which they really understand completely. So the dark matter, no clue whatsoever, which is most of the universe. The other stuff, we're working on it. So therefore, I don't think that we're required, those of us who are having powerful spiritual experiences, which are proving to us in the most fundamental way that, that these things are true, 
uh, I don't think we have to just sort of jump all over the knowledge field like as soon as as soon as science comes up with a new theory, okay, now we have to reinterpret everything we thought was true. I mean, that's obviously silly. So if you ask them Samasa. Anyway, getting back, so, so in the Mahabharata, uh, you have this great history where Earth, again, the three worlds, where Earth is just sort of a, nowadays kind of a lower middle class planet, you could say. And, uh, you know, dangerous. It's like one of those, you know, neighborhoods you don't want to really walk in at night. That's the earth. And so, and especially, so it was chosen as a place for the Asuras, the bad guys of the universe, to sort of take over a planet, use it, something like a Death Star, you know, from Star Wars. So the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita is just sort of, it, it's just flowing from the whole history. So if you're reading the big Mahabharata, you just think, okay, nothing's changed. But then suddenly something happens that changes everything. And that is Arjun has a type of breakdown. And if you know the whole Mahabharata, you'd be as startled as Krishna. Like, you know, you'd also think, Arjun, what the heck are you doing? Because if you know the whole history, it's, this is crazy, Arjuna. And what got into you? So that's the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. And um, so I'm going to go back roughly where we left off. Because Arjun is trying to kind of wiggle his way out of this war. And um, he's going to give arguments. Uh, he hasn't quite understood yet that it's not the Arjuna Gita. It's the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna's actually the speaker. So he's, um, so he's going to give arguments about why he shouldn't fight in this war. And, in the, and if you look at his arguments... They really tell you a lot about the social philosophy, like how people understood society, how people understood, you know, the role of, um, you know, military action, state violence, sometimes it's called. I mean, after all, surgeon, I mean, I mean surgery is also state-approved violence. So, so I'm going to get to some of these verses. Um, so, uh, the main heroes of the two armies are identified, and they blow their conch shells. If you've ever heard a conch shell blown by someone that really knows how to blow a conch shell, it's like deafening. It's like they didn't have microphones back then, but they did have conch shells. <laughs> so they kind of didn't need the, the microphones. And so so they blew, and they, these were powerful people. They had lungs. These were powerful warriors, and they blew these conch shells. It would really, it would, it would shake you. I mean, you'd literally tremble. At the sound, and so they're they're blowing these conch shells, and then at the Vyavastitanda So Arjun, looking upon the assembled warriors on the other side, the sons of Dhritarashtra, Prabhate Shastra Sampate. So he's just about to release his weapons. but he lifts up his bow. So I mean, the battle is really it's like it's happening now. But then So then suddenly Arjuna addresses Krishna. Because normally the battle's about to start and you're facing the enemy and you're raising your weapons, you don't say, Well, never mind all that. Can we talk? So <laughs> So but that's what Arjuna's doing. So I mean that alone is strange, like 
you know, the two armies are drawn up. They're just about to release these powerful weapons, which are really super high tech. And um, suddenly Arjuna says to Krishna, hi, Krishna, can we talk now? So that's the first thing he says. So that's the first indication that something is not normal. And then uh, Sanjay Uvacha. Uh, so um, Arjun said, so, so he's not going to, he's, he's actually not going to express his doubts yet. He's just going to give instruction. And, and, and the very fact that Krishna is his charioteer, I mean, if, if let's say some very famous, like Krishna, let's say some very a famous person suddenly shows up at your house as a guest or someone that you have the greatest respect for and, and you welcome this person, you say, hey, uh, you know, before we start talking, would you mind doing the dishes from lunch? <laughs> it's, it's just not the kind of thing, you, well, most people wouldn't do that. So, um, so Krishna, as Arjuna knows, is the Purushottama, the Supreme Person. He's, the, you know, the G person, God. And yet Krishna is so kind that he's driving Arjuna's chariot. That was very much a subordinate position. To be a chariot driver in that culture, it was not just like a co-warrior. It was, you know, it was, it was of course, respectable, but it was a serving position. Just to, you know, like the driver. So, and yet Krishna loved, loves his devotee so much, he took that position. So Arjun says, Sena yor vayor madye, rittam sapyamechuta. Krishna placed my chariot between the two armies. So that I can look upon these people, yodu kaman, who wish to fight. Now, right there is a clue. Because Arjun is a great warrior probably the greatest warrior on the planet at that time. I mean, he's famous. He's so famous. In those days, the, the, the main weapon was a bow, and they had all these high-tech arrows. I mean, the, the, the arrows were actually sort of like smart weapons, like missiles, and they had all kinds of power. So it's not just like, you know, it's not back of the caves. And Arjun's this famous warrior, and he says, I want to see the people who wish to fight. It's like, and you don't want to fight? Because what he's fighting for is justice. You know, if I had a hammer, you know, if I had a bow, I'd shoot arrows in the morning. So, I mean, Arjun is actually, he's fighting for justice. He's fighting to save Earth from a hostile takeover by very bad people. We're going to do bad things to the people of Earth. He's fighting for Dharma, which is the common sense the word for justice. So, and yeah, here he is just about the war is about to start and he describes the other people as desiring to fight. And what about you? What are you feeling? So he says, because in a sense, Arjun's statement is understandable because he wanted a peace treaty. Arjun and his brothers and Krishna worked very hard for a peace treaty, but the other people really just wanted to fight. So in one sense, you could justify Arjun saying that, like, okay, they want to fight in the sense that I did everything humanly possible to avoid this war, which, which he did. At the same time, that's already settled. I mean, don't, 
complain about them now. I mean, you know, the program today is the actual battle. And you'd better be desirous to fight because there's no other, the only option is, besides fighting, is basically turning the planet over to very bad people. And so therefore, it was our June's duty, once the fight, the war could not be avoided, to, you know, be enthusiastic, give it your best. And yet he's describing the other people, they want to fight. So then he says, um, I want to see the people with whom I now have to do battle. But again, he already knows them. He's known them his whole life. I mean, in terms of the generals, like the great generals on the other side, Kuru's side, are Bhishma, Drona, in order, and then Karna, and Shali, and other people. I mean, Arjun's known them his whole life. So why does he want to see them now? And just want to see what they're wearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, what exactly do you want to see? You already know who's out there. You know it very well. In fact, if you read the Anubhraj Mahabharata, just like you know, an American football game before the kickoff, the captains, the two teams meet in the middle of the field, you know, the coin toss and all that. And so before the battle of Kurukshetra, the generals, the main generals, both sides, they met in the middle. And it, or it's like, you know, mixed martial arts. Okay, I don't want any, you know, low blows. I don't want this. I don't want, you know, and it's kind of the referees tell, okay, these are the rules and everyone, you know, touch gloves and go back to your corner. So, so they have that little ceremony before the battle. So again, Arjun already knows all these things. Why does he describe the other people as wanting to fight? Why does he say he wants to see them? Now, of course, there is one powerful symbolic meaning here. And when I say symbolic, I don't mean that this didn't really happen. It did really happen. But powerful historical events are powerful because they express universal aspects of the human condition. So all of us, in a sense, are between two armies, two forces. Because even within ourselves, as we know, there's little, there are little, you know, like little devils inside of us that want to do things we shouldn't do. And so, you know, I'm talking about our own psychology, not actual devils. Kind of like pitchfork tails. So, but all of us know, I mean, I mean, if you stand in a high place, you know, there can be a little voice, and, voice inside you that says jump, you know, but you don't jump. And so, I mean, you know, there, we get bad messages sometimes. Or I knew I should. Do, I know I should do this, but I just don't want to do it. I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm just going to do it anyway. And then there, we all have a voice inside of us that tells us the truth. It tells us what's really good for us, what's really going to make us happy in the long run. No, I'm not going to go to the dentist. Is that going to make you happy in the long run? Not unless you, you know, want to break your attachment to teeth. So. So in that sense, our Krishna, our Jews telling Krishna, put my chariot in the middle between these two armies so I can see. So in a sense, that's what we all do when we, when we hear the Bhagavad Gita. We are all between two forces, two voices, two kinds of impulses, and we consider them. You know, we listen to those voices and we decide what kind of life we want. So that's the symbolic thing, but the historical reality is also there. So anyway, so 
So he wants to see that again. He says something which no one really thinks about these chapter one verses because they're so overskippable. But um, <laughs> but Arjuna again says Yotiamanan of Hum. So Yotiamanan, as you probably know, is the uh, third person accusative. Um, future participle. No question. So, yeah, so, so what it literally means, literally means like those who will be fighting. Those who will be fighting. And so in a sense, it kind of means like those who are about to fight. In fact, it's translated here as Yotsumana, um, those who, yeah, those who will be fighting. So, so I want to, so what about you, Arjun? Just, you know, look in the mirror. I mean, aren't you going to be fighting? So again, if you stop and think about it, Arjun is making a lot of statements which show clearly, if you know the Mahabharata, something is not right. This is not Arjun's most lucid moment. So, Yotsumanan avetsheham, yaitetra samagata, dartarastra siddhubhutir, yudhebhishakirshava. Okay, I want to see the, um, and I, and, uh, So they're here, Priya Chikirshava. Priya means uh, to please. Back when we get the English word please, Spanish, pra words are from Sanskrit, Priya, which means pleasure, the word pleasure to please. And so um, Priya Chikirshava, those who want to please the evil minded son of Vridharastra, who's Duryodhana. He's the villain here. And. Uh, so I want to see people who are about to who are about to fight in order to please an evil person. So then Sanjayovacha. So Evukto thus addressed Rishi Kesha, Krishna. And it's interesting, like why that name of Krishna here, Rishi Kesha? Because Krishna, Rishi Kesha literally means that Rishika Isha, the Lord of the senses. And so what's happening now is that Arjuna, instead of surrendering his body to God and, and acting as an instrument, acting dynamically, but as an instrument of an omniscient being, he wants to engage his senses, his arms and legs and eyes and ears in a way which, as we're going to see, is completely against Krishna's plan, the plan of God. And so, therefore, almost to remind Arjuna or to remind us here, Krishna is called Rishi Kesha. So every, every word in the Gita really is important. So uh, so then Arjun did, uh, Krishna did place the chariot, Rathotamam, that, that finest of chariots, he placed it between the two armies. And then, uh, and then Arjun sees everybody, and it said he sees, situated there, he sees fathers. Fathers means like basically like male seniors, uncles, father, grandfather, stuff like that. So they're all called Pajim, the fathers. Peter in Sanskrit, in which we get words like paternal, and everyone's favorite word nowadays, patriarchy. <laughs> so, Tatra Pashatitan Parata, Pijinata Pitamaha, fathers, grandfathers, Acharyan, teachers. This is a culture in which teachers are treated with great respect and veneration. 
I mean, I caught the tail end of that when I was in school in the early 50s, where we really had great respect for our teachers. So uh, Acharya, these are not only teachers, but masters, like, like important teachers, people who have guided you. And so they're out there. And so, and so Arjuna is seeing all this stuff and he's starting to basically feel that I can't do this. Matulan, maternal uncles. Bratern, brothers. That means like cousins were like brothers, including the bad guys. Putran, sons. Because if, if you know village culture all over that around the world, in India and other places, like if you live in a village where it's very intimate, then you know, people call, let's say, the women who are your mother's age, you call them mother or uncle. Like in India, they do this, and you call someone uncle. And so uh, people, so using family titles for people who aren't technically your genetic relatives, you find that all around the world in intimate communities. And so in the Vedic culture, it was like that also. So he's talking about uh, sons and grandsons, friends, uh, Swasuran, uh, sort of like uh, in-laws on the sister's side, well-wishers, and he's seen them on both sides. Because once the battle starts on both sides, I mean, this is not going to be pleasant. On both sides, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to leave their bodies on the battlefield on both sides. So then, so he, Arjuna, son of Kunti, Kuntea, seeing all these people, Sarvan, Banduna, all of his male relatives, practically all of his male relatives on both sides, situated there, he was overwhelmed by this profound compassion. Profound compassion, Vishidam. And literally, Vishida means he, he was sinking down. Vishida, he was sinking down. His spirits were sinking. And then he, and then he spoke. So now Arjun sees this, and he realizes that once the battle starts, you know, dozens and dozens of people who are family and intimate friends, they're going to be killed, and I'm going to watch them die on both sides. I'm going to have to kill people who are family. Because, I mean, those family members were actually bad people who were doing bad things in the world. But, but still, so that's... So, I mean, what can we take away? Obviously, in this age, we're not recommended to kill our relatives or anyone else. In fact, if you look at the pastimes the activities of Krishna as he comes in this age as Lord Chaitanya, no one is killed, not one person is killed. In the Mahabharata, when Krishna appeared in this world, there are these great battles and just millions of warriors lost their lives because these warriors were actually threatening the earth. But when Krishna comes as Lord Chaitanya in this age, people are in this age are so busy killing themselves except for to get out of their way. You know, by the food they eat, by the lifestyle choices they make. And so, in, and so in, in, in Krishna's pastimes, his activities in this age, not one person is killed. So it's very, it's very different. But, um, but this, was a very, this was a different age. So Arjun, seeing this, it said he's, he's overwhelmed with compassion. 
but he's forgetting why we're here. He's, he's forgetting the compassion he should have for the people of the earth who are all going to suffer terribly if they don't stop this Asura invasion. So that compassion kind of slipped his mind. And actually, when one identifies with the body, I mean, we're all obvious, we're all eternal souls. I and mean, that, that's kind of obvious. I mean, even if someone thinks, well, thanks a lot, but I, I think I'd rather be my body because, you know, I prefer mortality to immortality, which already should tip you off. This person's not thinking coherently, but, but actually we couldn't be the body. The, the, the French philosopher Descartes, you know, honk if you like Descartes. Anyway, <laughs> the French philosopher Descartes, uh, he did this very interesting experiment, which I think I've explained before, and that is because he lived at a time when there was a lot of tension in the world. There was a lot of tension in the world because on the one hand, you know, in, in the sort of the middle Renaissance, you were still supposed to think of the earth itself as the kingdom of Christ on earth. And so you want knowledge, easy. Not even read the Bible. You weren't allowed to read the Bible. That was actually a capital offense. You would be executed. People were executed for letting other, like normal people read the Bible, like translate it into the, you know, not Latin, but Vulgate languages. But, you know, the Bible's all we need. But in the Renaissance, they came up with this new idea, which is that actually God has given us two books, not just one, not just the Bible, Old and New Testament. The other book is nature. We can learn from nature. And they reasoned that, well, God created the physical world, and God is an infinitely rational being with supreme intelligence. And therefore, we find in the natural world the reason the, 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 of God. And of course, and, and that reason, the fact that there's divine reason invested in physical nature, that the universe was created in a rational way according to laws, that there are laws of nature. Because imagine if the world was absolutely random, chaotic, there were no laws of nature. When apples dropped from trees, sometimes they went down, sometimes they went up, sometimes they went sideways. And there was actually no, you say, well, why? No reason. The world is just chaotic, period. There are no laws of nature. I mean, who would like that? So, um, so the whole idea that there can be a science, it can only be a science if the physical world obeys laws. And the reason they assume the physical world does obey laws is because it, the world is created by an infinitely rational being, God. So actually, it was a theistic idea that was behind the scientific revolution. But nonetheless, inevitably, as science advanced more and more in the 1600s, and you get Newton, you get Pascal, and all kinds of people, Francis Bacon. So as science is advancing, inevitably, it started to bump into some of the church's assumptions and teachings about the physical world. Because as, as Galileo criticized, the problem with the church is that they don't just tell you how to go to heaven, which that's fine, we all want to know that. But they also think they can tell us how the heavens go, astronomy. And so basically Galileo and his you know, friends were saying, just tell us how to go to heaven. We'll tell you how the heavens go. 
And so there was this tension. There was this tension. Now there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. So there was this tension because science started discovering things that did not match the church's teaching on the physical world. So that was a problem. And science wasn't going to stop. They just kept going. But there was so, so Descartes comes along, who, by the way, is one of the greatest scientists of the 1600s. One of the, I mean, just among the many things invented that you still might find helpful in your life, graphs, like a vertical axis and a horizontal axis, you know, that's bonked to, uh, to Descartes. So, and he, he was one of the great, greatest scientists of the century, mathematician, and also philosopher. So he, in the middle of all this struggle, he said, okay, I'm going to try to build a system of knowledge which is irrefutable, which can't be wrong because it's based on things that you can't deny. Is it possible to build a system of knowledge on a foundation which you simply can't rationally doubt? If you doubt it, you're just being crazy. Like if someone doubts that the sun is in the sky, especially today, if someone doubts we're having a blue sky, hot day in Southern California, then, and, and they really think that's not true, then, you know, we're not going to waste a lot of time. We may recommend them for certain kinds of <laughs> mental health services. So Descartes thought about this and he, he thought that he said, well, there's, he called the book he wrote about this, the meditation. And he said, there's one thing which I cannot doubt, which I, which I cannot doubt. And that is uh, that I exist. He said, because I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about this and therefore I must exist, which is, you know, cogito ergo sum. If you know Spanish, sum is just soy. So, um, and then of course he, you know, made a lot of other conclusions, but so therefore I, I mentioned Descartes because if Descartes right, which I think he is, I mean, the one thing you know more than you know anything else is that you exist and that you exist as an individual person. So even if you go to some, let's say, virtual reality ride at Universal Studios or something, then it looks like, you know, you're on a spaceship that's about to crash into the moon or something. So even though, let's say, digital technology outwits your senses, you have a certain ability to discern between the real and the and, and the unreal, but technology now actually goes beyond those abilities. So even though, let's say, in one of the, in a virtual reality environment, you may not really know what's actually happening, but still you know that you exist and that you are an individual person experiencing it. So, so in other words, your knowledge of yourself as an individual conscious being is more fundamental than your knowledge of the physical world. That's the point. And it's based on that most fundamental knowledge that we know that we could not possibly be the physical body. Because, and this Krishna explains this in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter two, which we'll come to if you live long enough. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, 
Krishna famously says in the Bhagavad Gita, Dehi no svinjata dehi komaram jovanavajara. That just as in this body, asmindehi, in this body, dehina, in this body of the embodied being, of the soul who, is in, who has this body, just as we experience dehi no svinjata dehi komaram, which means basically childhood, the word Kumara, Komaram, Jovanam, Jovanam, which we get the word youth, or Jovan in Portuguese. So Jovanam means youth. In other words, like, you know, when your body becomes mature, but you're still not an adult. And if you're a male, your brain is still over a decade away from sanity. So, so Komaram, Jovanam, Ajara, and Jara. You should know because that's when we get words like geriatrics, gerontology, or just geritol. We used to sponsor <laughs> Ted Mac Amateur Hour. Anyway, so those <laughs> those are all from the Sanskrit word gera, which means old age. That's where you get the word geriatric moment. So the, what Krishna is explaining here is that we have already reincarnated. So if someone says like. I don't know if I believe in reincarnation or is there reincarnation? It's not really a very serious question because you've already, we've already reincarnated many times. I think it's, you know, divide your age by seven or something. So if you're 35 years old, you're going on, you know, you're on your fifth reincarnation, literally. Because carne, you know, Latin means flesh. And so uh, to reincarnate means to reinflesh. And the skin, of course, takes about two weeks. So your skin is reincarnating like twice a month. So therefore, when you, you know, if someone does the, you know, in the original language, it was Spieglein, Spieglein on der Bahn, Ferris, Schoenstein, Gansen, Bahn. That's the original of Mirror, Mirror on the Wall. Spieglein, Spieglein, Anderbahn, Ferris, Schoenstein. And then it goes, Ihr Frau König, Schoenstein, here. You, Lady Queen, are the fairest here. Other Shevichkin, but Snow White. Uber die Bergen, over the hills, by the sieben Schwergen, by the seven dwarfs, is a thousand miles, thousand miles schöner as here. He's a thousand times fairer than you. Of course, wrong answer for the Queen, but. So when you do your Spieglein, Spieglein, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, <laughs> it's really great here, it's called German, you know, Brothers Grimm, they did actually write in German. So, so when you look in the mirror, you are seeing a face that literally didn't exist two weeks ago. So before you, you know, are tempted to identify with it, of course, you know, at my age, there is no temptation. In fact, I'm highly motivated not to identify with my body. So, um, so when you look in the mirror, you're looking at a face that has been existing for two weeks. And we have, so, and we see even normal English and, and you know, little linguistic uh, anthropology here. We say, oh, when I was a child or I was born, you don't say when he or she was born, when I was born. When I was a kid, everyone talks that way because that's the reality. 
There are many things you can discover by looking at common language. Because when you look at common language, sometimes you can discover what people's deepest intuitions are about reality. So if it wasn't just self-evident, obvious to everyone that it was me back then, there would be other forms of speaking, but there aren't. So I had a child's body, to be more technically, technically accurate, I had a child's body, Grandview Boulevard School. Actually, first I went to lower kindergarten in Mar Vista, then Grandview Boulevard, then switched to Castle Heights. Anyway, uh, I know you were all too shy to ask that, but you all wanted to know. <laughs> so, so when I was in kindergarten, I mean, it was me. When I was a you know crazy adolescent, that was me. And um, but the body's different. It's not the same body. So it's just not possible. Get over it. It's not possible that we are the body. It's just not possible because it contradicts our deepest, most profound, most self-evident knowledge, which is knowledge of our own existence. So when you say, I was a child, I was a teenager, you're speaking from the most powerful, undoubtable knowledge that you possess. Because as Descartes points out, technically it's not impossible that there is no such thing as Los Angeles. There's no such thing as your body or your family or the planet Earth. You are actually a brain in a laboratory. As Descartes put it, of an evil genius, the laboratory of an evil genius, who's nowadays they say, you know, uh, you know, brain in a vet. And so, evil genius is just manipulating you. Maybe it's not even a brain. Maybe it's, maybe the whole idea of brain was added. Maybe it's something else. And you're, you're just being neurologically manipulated to imagine that right now you're in Los Angeles in Veda Yoga. Now, very few of us are actually going to run with that. Because, you know, for us, our experience of the physical world is you know, it's good enough to convince us it's really out there. But still, you could doubt it. You could choose the philosophy called solipsism. And there's a kind of a fine line between solipsism and uh, mental illness. But anyway, ah. solipsism is the philosophy that the only thing I can know for sure is the contents of my own mind. That's the only thing I can know for sure, in a sense. Descartes is saying he's not, he's not a solipsist. He's not saying you can't know other things, but that's the bedrock. That's the foundation of everything else you know. And so by that bedrock knowledge, by that most basic, most indubitable knowledge, you know that you are not your body. And therefore to say, well, I'm not sure if I am my body. You're, someone says that they're simply not paying attention. Because it's not possible to rationally doubt that you are the consciousness inside the body and not the body itself. And because people back in ancient India were not damn fools, they understood this and they developed these powerful technologies to try to understand the soul. One of those powerful technologies is called yoga. 
But that's actually what they were doing. They knew that we are not the body. So, so what are we? And let's meditate on our real self. That's why you have one uh, stage, one anga in Ashtanga, which is called Pratyahara. Because Prati means, it can mean backwards or reverse. Like, like if you were driving your ancient Vedic hot rod, you could throw it into Prati, you know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, so ahara means taking, bringing, bringing. So pratyahara, so it means this, because normally our senses just are flying out into the world. Like I want to see something pleasurable or touch something that pleases me or hear something pleasurable. People walk and they, you know, they would never actually consider listening to what's going on around them. That's not really a modern option. So they have their, so anyway, um, so that's what our senses do. Our senses are like flying out into the world, looking for pleasure. So Pratyahara means once you've done yam and yam, in other words, once you're a decent human being, you're not doing like crazy, unethical things. And once you're self-controlled and, uh, you know, you're, and you can sit properly so you don't get cramps or, you know, just, you know, yeah, I did yoga for five years and then of course I had to have one of my legs amputated. So there was in order to avoid things like that, they would do awesome. And then Pranayama, control your breathing, which is obviously, it's very interesting because to understand why they did Pranayama, you simply have to consider that the same word in Sanskrit, and there's actually two different words, the same word means breath and life. So prana, you know, it means, you know, it kind of stands for all the five, but it, uh, pra means forth, like the breath going forth. And so, so there's the prana, which is literally breath, but it also means life. In fact, uh, in fact, another common synonym of prana, which means the same, exactly the same thing as asu. Asu. So when Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that the wise do not, do not lament for the living or the dead, it's translated that way, what Krishna actually says is the wise don't lament for those whose asu is gone. Their, their life air is gone. They're dead. Or at least their body is dead. Or a gata asu. Or their life air is not gone. So in Sanskrit, gata-sum-sa-gata-sum-cha-nanu-sho-chanti-pandita. The pandita, the wise, don't lament for the living or the dead. So, because, I mean, the very fact that the same word, two different words in Sanskrit, mean your life there, but also your life, life itself. So, obviously, regulating that life there uh, was an important technique for actually getting your life under control. But then, once you've done all that, you've done the moral stuff, and you're a decent person, so your mind's not going to be agitated by bad thoughts because bad thoughts do put you in a fever. I mean, the best, the best illustration of how doing bad things and having bad thoughts just totally destroys mental tranquility. You just have to read one of the most famous novels of the 19th century, Crime and Punishment, by Dostoevsky, where this sort of this cynical um, law student dropped out of Skolnikov almost as an intellectual experiment, he decides to kill someone because he's a nihilist. Like, you know, nothing's real. Life doesn't mean anything, so why not? 
So it's like he's going to, you know, in other words, he's not just one of these fools that says, well, there's no real right or wrong, just whatever you believe. Uh, so he actually wants to carry that out. I'm sure Svetlana knows all about uh, Dostoevsky. So anyway, so he does that. And what happens is his conscience just begins to haunt him and torture him. And he literally almost dies with fever. And so it's, it's this great story. At the end, he's saved, interestingly, by this very simple young lady who's not really so educated. She's poor, and she has to engage in sort of really bad occupations because the sort of family won't starve. And yet she has absolutely unshaking faith in God. I mean, she's absolutely fixed in her in her devotion to God, and she saves him. And so he meets her, and he realizes that this girl is my salvation. She's going to save my physical life, and she's going to save my soul. And she does that. So it's a, it's a very beautiful story of crime and punishment, uh, now available at a Govinda's shop near you. <laughs> so... So in order to meditate, this is an also important point, in order to meditate, in order to be successful in yoga, you have to be a very moral, decent person. Because selfishness disturbs the mind. Selfishness disturbs the mind. When you are unkind to other people, that disturbs the mind. If I steal from other people, and that's one of the, actually, yama niyama, stayam, no fever, literally. And so any unkindness on your part or unkindness to yourself, for example, eating bad food or doing things that will degrade you, you're being unkind to yourself. So in order to be peaceful and meditate, you have to be situated in sattva guna, in actual goodness. You have to be a thoroughly virtuous person. And you have to control your sitting. You have to be able to breathe properly because of breath, because your life, in a sense, is resting on these vital airs. And so, so once you've done all that, now you can roll up your yoga sleeves and get to work. That's all preparation. The first four angas, uh, you know, chaturanga, four angas. The first four angas are just to kind of get you in shape, spring training. You know, and, and to, to get you in shape to do the actual cognitive work. And so the, the other four stages are the actual work on consciousness directly. And so the first stage of that is prati ahara, reverse intake, which means that literally, which means, actually it's very literal, because hara is from the verb her, which means to take like Hari when it takes away our troubles. It's actually reverse intake. So you can tell everybody right now, hey, let's do some reverse intake. <laughs> you may think you plan to commit suicide by closing your garage door and turning on the engine, but anyway, so, so <laughs> sort of a morbid thought, isn't it? So Pratyahara means that instead of letting your senses rush out looking for gratification in the world, you bring consciousness back within yourself. Pratyahara. That's what literally means. And then dharana, which as I always say, literally means hang on. 
Because when you bring your consciousness back, I mean, it's so conditioned to fly out, to look for things to enjoy, that you bring it back and it's going to bounce back out. And so therefore, once you bring your consciousness, as, as everyone knows, you know, sitting down for an extended period of time and really meditating and actually turning your phone off. You know, it's, um, it's not so easy to really forget everything. And so therefore, after saying Pratyahara, Dharana, which means sustaining it, literally sustaining it, or holding it. And then once you've brought your consciousness within and you've sustained it there so it doesn't bounce back out, now you're ready to meditate. Then dhyana. And when your meditation becomes perfect, then you know you win the uh, not just the partic- participation trophy, but you, <laughs> you actually win the real trophy, then that's, that's uh, samadhi. And the word samadhi, which I don't know if I mentioned before, is made up of three uh, semantic elements. It's sam, ah, and di. Sam means completely, or everything together, everything complete. Like, I, as I said, like the English sin, S-Y-N, like synthesis. And ah uh, can be in Sanskrit, it can be different things, but the prefix ah is also an intensifier. An intensifier. And d. Uh, the word D means intelligence or consciousness. So when you intensely and completely fix your consciousness, uh, that's samadhi. And also the word D is actually, it's, it's, it's bivalent. It, it goes two ways because it's a very, it's, it was a very clever little word to put at the end of this compound. Because D can mean intelligence, and, and, and you get also, like the word buddhi means intelligence, buddhi. And also D by itself can mean intelligence. And then, but D also means to place. D also means to place. It comes from the root ta. Uh, okay, I can't help myself. We still have it in English. Actually, the word to place or a place in the old English suffix dumb. D-O-M, like kingdom, or then all that. The dumb and kingdom is actually from the Sanskrit dumb. So, um, the place of the king, the kingdom. And so, da can mean like you place your consciousness intensely, uh, ah, and some completely in the spiritual truth, or it can mean the intelligent self, but but anyway, that's samadhi. And of course, the Yoga Sutras say samadhi siddhir ishwara pratidhana, that you achieve samadhi siddhi. Siddhi means perfection. So you achieve the perfection of the perfection because if you read the Yoga Sutras, there are different categories of samadhi. There's like samadhi for dummies, and then there's you know, immediate samadhi. And so when you get to the highest stage of samadhi, that's called samadhi siddhi, the perfection of the perfection of yoga. And you achieve that according to Patanjali, Ishwara Pratidhana, by devoting yourself to the Lord. Just want to let you know what the real yoga is about. So, uh, what time is it now? Just a few more minutes just to wrap it up with the, with the Gita. So, 
Arjun basically is kind of having something like a nervous breakdown. Or, I mean, I mean, he's not literally breaking down and becoming incoherent, but he's really, he's really crashing badly. And it's very interesting because he describes all these behavioral symptoms. Because he's trying to, what he's trying to tell Krishna is, this is really bad for me, Krishna. It's not just like, I'd rather not. It's not that I'd rather not. It's that I'm really falling apart completely. And so he says, uh, my limbs literally are sinking. It's like, you know, sometimes people are so shocked. Like, I mean, you know, sad thing, but it's a very common thing that when people receive some horrible news, like someone you love very much was just killed. And sometimes they literally can't stand their feet. They literally fall to the ground. Or if they're holding something, they drop it. And so, I mean, the limbs, actually your arms and legs or, their, or your feet and hands literally losing all their strength is, is real. And that's what Arjuna's describing. Mama Gachani, Gachani limbs. My limbs, Sita here, just sinking. And he's literally about to collapse on the chariot. So Sita Di Mama Gachani, Mukum Chaparishushati, and my mouth is completely drying up. So we have a psychologist there, uh, Leo. So, yeah, these are these are real symptoms. These these are real psychosomatic symptoms. And then he goes on. He says, um, "My my body is trembling. He's literally, you know, the body is trembling. and my 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 hairs are just well, just standing up on end." I was going to give you a visual example. I mean, I do have hair, but it won't stand up. It's kind of... So, um, so his hairs are saying that he's just, but he's really, he's devastated. He's gone. And then Gandivam, Romaharso, Gandivam Shansate has stuck. And Gandiva is slipping from my hand. Gandiva is Arjuna's boat. Arjun was such a powerful warrior, and Gandiva was the celestial bow that literally every warrior on earth was afraid of. He was feared by every warrior. In fact, Pandas were incognito about 12 years, and they finally came out of hiding because some they lost this galley mask. But when they came out, and Arjun signaled to the world that I'm back, he just he strung his bow, which he just like, just strung his bow again, and he, you know, twangedly pulled the bowstring back, and the sound was so powerful that, like everyone within, you know, several mile radius, knew that Arjuna's back, and the, the enemies were literally, well, I don't want to say doing something in their pants, but they were. <laughs> I mean, Arjuna's enemies were literally like shocked and and, and frightened just by the. Because everyone knew the sound of his bow. There was no other bow on earth that made that sound. And yet this great bow, Gandiva, is slipping out of his hands. He can't even hold his bow, let alone shoot arrows. He can't even hold up his bow. So Gandiva, and my skin is burning. My skin is burning. And then... Uh, and he says, Netrashat no me have stopped him. I can't stay here. I can't stand here on this chariot. 
And, and I can't, he used the word Shaknomi. You know the word Shakti. So the word Shakti, of course, is a noun, power, energy, which comes from a Sanskrit verb, which means to have the power to do something. Which is interesting. Actually, if you know Spanish or Portuguese or, or Italian, it's the Latin language, the same thing. Because poder in Spanish means power. That's how you say power in Spanish, poder. But it's also the verb to be able to do something like yo no. I, was, I wanted to use an, an auxiliary verb to keep it in the same form, poder. Que no voy a poder. I want to keep it poder. Thanks. She conjugated it. I'm not clicking. Conjugated it. I asked you not to conjugate it. So anyway, so. <laughs> so she said, no puedo from the verb poder. I can't, but I'm unable to the power. Or, or no voy a poder. I'm not going to be able to do this. So, so same thing in Sanskrit. It's just like Spanish, like Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, poder, Italian, technically, poder. So, um, so that's the verb shuck. So you can make the, the noun shakti, which means, of course, power, or you can say, like Arjun says here, na shok me. I don't have the power to do something. I don't have the power. And happily, after the verb to have the power, you also use the infinitive in Sanskrit, like English. I thought that was kind of amusing. So, I don't have the power. I don't have the shakti to just even stay here, to stand here. And now he gives not merely phys physical symptoms, that my mind is reeling. The Sanskrit verb brahm, B-H-R-A-M, that root means just to wander, just to reel. And so he says brahm in his mind. He's actually even losing his mental coherence. So he's really, he's going into shock, basically. He's going into a deep state of shock. It's a very powerful description. So he says, I see nimittas, which in Sanskrit mean different things. It can mean an, uh, an instrumental cause, like in Aristotle's system of causality. But here it means something like an omen, an omen. You see the, the relationship between an omen and an instrumental cause, because the omen doesn't cause the thing, it just tells you it's about to happen. So he says, I see omens which are viparitani, which are completely going in the wrong direction, like completely wrong. I'm seeing omens that are, you know, literally, it means literally going completely in the wrong direction. That's what the word literally means. So nimitani chapashami, I see viparitani keshava, O Krishna. So I'll stop here. And, uh, so again, if you know the Mahabharata story, this is literally unbelievable. Like, is this Arjuna? Like, who took over his body? Because Arjuna is this totally fearless warrior, totally determined. And now, but, but now it's come down, but it's interesting, if you read the Mahabharata, he's never actually had to kill family members. And if, if, you, if you look back at societies, like let's say pre-industrial Europe, where countries are ruled by kings and queens, then, and because kings and queens or princes and princesses marry royalty, you know, when it's really going right, then, um, so the result is 
that in a particular geographic area, like let's say Europe, East and Western Europe, you can throw in Russia actually, as part of the same geographic area, every king and queen is sort of related to every other king and queen. Like everyone's related. I mean, at the, at, at the lowest, they're cousins, or second or third cousin, but everyone is related. Because that's what you, because when you have a system of royalty in a circumscribed geographic area and royalty marries royalty after a few, <laughs> and, and it's been going on for centuries, everyone's related to everyone else. And that was exactly the situation here. So for our Jew to say, I'm not going to fight with my family means I'm not going to fight because no, there is no one else. I mean, at least all the leaders of the battle, you know, they're royalty, the ordinary soldiers, warriors. Not. So, thank you all for your attention. And uh, are there any questions? Yes, please. Yes. Oh, same rules as last time. If you want to ask a question, please come. And then you can see yourself here. And just remember the mantra that there's no business like show business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to see yourself. Oh, I have to see myself. Then they can see you. Okay, so I have a question to what you were saying. I hope I understood it correctly. So when um, when <laughs> I'm sit down. Um, when Krishna is saying he doesn't feel like fighting and uh, Arjuna is uh, sorry when yeah. Arjuna is saying he doesn't feel like fighting and he's quivering, his mouth is drying up. And um, then we all know he doesn't want to fight out of compassion, but you're saying he's misled because the idea is that he is going to battle to fight the Asuras, did I understand? Yes, bad guys in the universe, yeah, mm -hmm. bad people. And also, and also, um, yeah, so he's actually going to cause more human suffering by not fighting. That's one point. And he's going to, he's going to cause human suffering for a very long time because if you look at the type of monarchy that existed in, in ancient India, it was not absolute monarchy. It wasn't Louis XIV, you know, I am the state, the Tao It was constitutional monarchy. It was constitutional monarchy, which is very, very different. Constitutional monarchy is not, you know, Alice in Wonderland off with their heads. It's kind of like England post-Glorious Revolution, William and Mary. And so... Um, and that's and so the constitution is being violated because because the people Arjuna is fighting, especially Duryodhana, they have their authority and power by violating Dharma. And so, if the most powerful people in the world simply uh, throw away Dharma, how are the how are other people going to follow it? If the leaders don't follow it. Then who else is going to follow it? And basically, the world's going to go to hell because no one's going to follow Dharma. And, and by saying not following Dharma means that people don't respect each other, they steal from each other, they commit violence against each other, including sexual violence, they, uh, they're just not nice. So Dharma, you know, we may think Dharma is some esoteric thing in Buddhism or Hinduism, but ultimately Dharma means law. It means law and order, justice. People follow the rules. So what's at stake here is not just people aren't going to follow Hindu or Buddhist customs, you know, Dharma. What's at stake here is that people are going to become savages, barbarians. It's just, you know, law of the jungle. Mm -hmm. So that's really what's at stake here. 
So can I ask my follow-up question, Nancy? <coughs> yes. So then this sentence confuses me then too, so I understand what you're saying, but then he says, oh Krishna, killer of the Kesi demon. Oh, there was a, there was an Asura named Kesi who was a, who was causing havoc, you know, killing and raping innocent people. So Krishna invited him to have a change of body experience. <laughs> <laughs> or out of body, a permanent out of body experience. Yes, because when Krishna came to this world, there were all kinds of bad people that invaded this world, and so Krishna systematically, you know, red carded them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Great. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. Anyone else? Any other contestant? Yes, please come and look into the camera. Sorry, the makeup crew didn't show up today, so you have to let you go as you are. <laughs> yeah, when you can see yourself, people can see you. All right. Hi, Christian. Sorry, Dave. Um, actually, I had two questions. Um, yes. One of them was in regards to uh, you were talking about our, our bodies and our changes of the bodies. We also have a subtle body made of intelligence mind and false ego yes. and in the Gita it says that that's what takes us to our next gross body well Krishna doesn't actually say that it's often said by devotees and so there's kind of a tendency to think that everything that devotees say a lot is in the Bhagavad Gita but actually that's but it's um but it is um but Krishna does say he, he does say the same thing in another way, in that he says that whatever you fix your mind on, actually he says it directly. He says, the verses at the beginning of chapter 8, yang yang vapi smaran bhavam, kejat yante kalevaram, tang tangi vaiti konteya sadata bhava bhavita. Translation, which means that whatever a person, yang yang, yang yang smarati, what is Tetsu down to? Oh my God, I can't believe I forgot it. I just said it. Huh? Yes, thank you. Shut up. Young Young Vapis is an old friend. Young Young Vapis Maran Bhava, my father's an old friend. Young Young Vapis Maran Bhava, that uh, whatever a person is remembering, whatever a person is remembering, Young Young Vapis Maran But there's a key word here. Krishna uses the word bhava, whatever bhava you're remembering. And so I'll explain, you have to understand what bhava means. Bhava is from the Sanskrit root bhu, to be, so it means being or state of existence. That's where we get the be in the English word to be. So, so Krishna says literally whatever state of existence, yang yang vapi smaran bhava, whatever bhava, whatever state, so he's not talking about Oh, well, here's a joke. Here's a Hindu joke, actually, to show you what it doesn't mean. That there was this Hindu who was determined that his next life, he wanted to go to a higher world. And so in order to do that, he was worshiping the devas, these demigods, to go to these higher material worlds. And so in order to remember them, because we can remember the time of death, he named all of his sons after some demigod. Like one son was Indra, one son was Varuna, one son was, and so on and so forth. So, uh, 
So then, uh, Surya, so then the, he was lying on his deathbed and his sons were all around him. He looked around and said, my sons are all here. He said, Indra? Yes, I'm your father. Varun? I'm your father. Surya? I'm your father. And the last thing he said before he left this world, damn it, who's in the store? <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's not what Krishna's talking about. So I'll explain because then Krishna says, Jamjam Bhapi Smaran Bhavam Tejati Ante Kalevaram Ante at the end, Tejati, when you're giving up the body, whatever bhava, whatever state of being you remember, tang tang evaiti kontea. Uh, the person goes in each and every case. That's literally what it says. Literally, the person goes in each and every case. The person to that bhava, to that state of existence. Why? Because sadata bhava bhavitaha. You have to really think how to do this. You get because bhava bhavita. Krishna's, it's, it's very brilliant composition. It's almost like saying that, um, it's like, well, literally, it's like whatever state of being, whatever state of consciousness you were cultivating, because bhavita can also mean cultivated, like something was cultivated, something was, so whatever, whatever, so he's not talking about one little thing, like the last thing someone says, is, oh, shit, you know, and then he, <laughs> what Krishna's talking about is during your life, how did you live your life? And of course, as we know, Many people have near-death experience say that, you know, your whole life kind of, it's like suddenly your whole life rushes before you. And so it's like when I was a kid, I worked at my father's supermarket and, you know, I worked the cash register about starting at about 15 or 16. At the end of the day, you push this one button and the whole day's total would come up. You know, so you push that button, the drawer would come out and bing, you know, that's the total, total money for the day. And um, so that's what happens at the time of death. It's how did you spend your life? Sada, always. What were you always doing? What were you always thinking of? And so at the time of death, you don't just remember what you happened to say. You remember what you devoted yourself to. You remember what you focused your life on. If it was materialistic thing, you're going to remember that. It's not that, you know, like, like you, know, you just have a tape playing, you know, say a devotee. You know, for the last 30 years, it's kind of, uh, you know, lost in action in the uh, Mahatapa. But it's, um, and so then at the time of death, I'll just say Krishna, let's have a tape playing. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you get some points for that. I mean, you know, but it's really how you lived your life. It's what, con what state of consciousness you cultivated throughout your life. That determines. So, and that's confirming what you were asking about. Because your question was, just repeat your question. Uh, when do you, what, does one also get a, a new subtle body? Or does yeah. the mind then... So the subtle body is sukshma sharida, which literally means a subtle body. It's, um, you mold it. It's just like even neurologically. When you make decisions, when you say things or choose things or do things, you're not simply deterministically being driven by your neurology. You are reinventing your neurology. Because choices actually reconfigure the brain. That's why activities are habit-forming, or in the worst case, is addictive. 
And so therefore, you can call it the subtle body or, you know, you can, sure, you can call it that. But so Krishna says that it is your subtle body. It is your state of consciousness that you cultivated throughout your life that literally takes you to your next physical reality. So, the, I mean, that verse really, and then, of course, Krishna says, yo, 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 that whoever thinks of me will come directly to me, no doubt. I mean, that's the point. If you, that's Prabhupada would say, mold your life. If you organize your life so that you can practice Krishna consciousness, that whenever you leave this world, and life is, you know, nowadays anything but predictable on this planet. And so uh, then you're guaranteed, if you cultivate Krishna consciousness, you will go to a powerful, ecstatic, spiritual realm. So it's not just what they call sort of like deathbed piety. <laughs> but, which is nice, and it's better than nothing. But the real thing is to really, to practice Krishna consciousness. And there are other verses, I just gave that one, but that directly confirms, I mean, obviously, you know what they call it, scars, sort of like your deep psych psychology. <laughs> which may not be consciously available to you, you know, but still there's a deep psychology in it. So you can call it the, you know, the sort of samskara package, or you can call it the subtle body, or you can call it, you know, whatever, but that's, it does take you to your next life. So, there are no other questions last going, going, sold to the lady. Yeah. <laughs> Step right up. Okay, this is like, this is like Vedi Yoga has talent. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you going to do today? <laughs> I'm going to ask a question about. <laughs> so my question is about um, the different descriptions of how Arjuna was reacting to what he is seeing. And so there is, there's so many descriptions that talk about how he was out of his dharma, right? That he was in a, yes. he couldn't touch his bow, that he was feeling like he couldn't connect to his mind, that he was sort of having a mental breakdown. But there's one word that sort of confuses me that is unaligned with that, yes. which is the word compassion. When when it says that when he sees and he's right, with right. compassion. Right. Okay, very interesting question. Yeah, I also noticed that, but I'm glad you brought that up. That was, that was, a, that was a good catch. <laughs> You can say that if you like, because then you may want to react, that you may hear my answer and then immediately demand a refund or something. <laughs> 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 so, um, I, the word kripayavisa, which means sort of like, you know, overwhelmed with compassion, I think it's mentioned there because otherwise you could misunderstand what was happening. You could think it was cowardice. You could think, it was, um, he was really a fifth columnist. He was really like a mole. He was really on the other side. And that's, and that's why he didn't want to kill those people. He was really on their side. I mean, you could think all kinds of things. And so it was, you could say misplaced compassion, but it was compassion. And, and so to understand that we have to remember that uh, in this world, say virtues like compassion or generosity, when we exercise those virtues in this world in a material way, then, you know, it's still a type of goodness, but it's not spiritual. And so, because like, let's say I give, say I give some needy person some money and they go out and, and say, buy a hot dog. 
so that you know support your local slaughterhouse. So, so, or if I just help, also because if someone, let's say, if someone is inclined to act in such a way that they suffer in this life, you can try to ameliorate their suffering. But what happens when you're gone and they suffer again? So it's it's kind of like palliative care. And if you go to a hospital, let's say you've got a really serious health problem and they just, you know, give you something so you don't feel it. Okay, it doesn't hurt now, does it? So material welfare, I mean, it's good. Like if I was in pain, I went to a medical center, I would say, give me, bring on the palliative care. You know, bring on the, you know, the pain medicine, bring it on. But at the same time, I would be very concerned that my condition is actually treated. Don't just give me a drug so I forget that I have a, an illness or a problem which if not treated will be terminal. I don't want to forget that fact. I want the real treatment. But as the treatment is going on, sure. I mean, one time I made a big mistake when I, in 1972, uh, I was traveling around America preaching to universities. 23. I actually became a leader in the Hare Krishna movement before I, my brain fully matured. So <laughs> that explains a lot. So a lot of other people. Anyway, that, that explains a lot about the early days of this gun. So anyway, so I had to get wisdom teeth out. So in those days, you know, there was only one place you'd go for metal, medical treatment if you were devoting free clinic. I mean, not going to waste Krishna's money on quality medical care. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went to a you know, public hospital and I had my wisdom, some of my wisdom, actually I had the other wisdom teeth taken out at Harvard, but anyway, I had some wisdom teeth taken out and I don't even know if they asked me, like, do you want some kind of like painkiller? I forget if they asked me and I was just... I was having a, like a, a wonderful transcendental stupid moment. And I said, no, I'm not this body. I mean, okay. back then, I wouldn't have put it past me. Or maybe because it was not the best quality medical because they didn't even ask me. Whatever the case, I went back to the temple. I was in the Boston. In those days, we only stayed in temple. I was in the Boston temple and, oh my God, the pain came on. And it was like, excruciating. Yeah. I mean, I was just, it was just, anyway. <laughs> I won't go through my little thesaurus of you know, the excruciating, but it was, it was horrible. So when I had to get, when I had to get my, you know, the other half of my wisdom teeth out when I was at Harvard, I told the dentist, he said, do you want some, you know, thing? I said, kid, go, yeah, everything you've got, <laughs> the strongest you've got, and, you know, and I'm, I'm definitely going to double dip here. So, and basically, I, and so I spent the next 24 hours basically in strawberry fields, but, <laughs> but it was much better than Boston. Actually, it's funny, I had all my wisdom take, teeth taken out in the Boston area. I don't know what, what kind of Boston karma I have, but, so anyway, so the palliative care, bring it on but also do the real stuff. So in that sense, our June, let's say mundane piety, it wasn't spiritual, it wasn't transcendental, 
but also I think we shouldn't um, put it down. We shouldn't just, you know, look down on it because having material compassion so that it, it does bother you if someone is really suffering in this world. You can say, okay, the real solution is Krishna consciousness. Yeah, but if you have empathy and, you know, we're all ignorant in this way or another and we all suffer somehow because we're ignorant and therefore... And what Krishna actually recommends in the Bhagavad Gita, a universal empathy. The exact words are, he says that the highest yogi is one who has universal empathy. Atmopanyena sarvatra. Atma means the self. And uh, opanya means by comparison. Because, okay, I can't, I can't help it, sorry. I need, I need linguistic therapy here. But, so, upa means near. Upa means near, and other things will go into all the meanings, but... And we still have that in English also, because the Greeks would put a silent H in front of words in certain phonetic environments. It's like the word honor, or, you know, you don't pronounce the H. So they put an H in front of the Sanskrit Upa, and also they pronounced the U, like a French or German U, so they said Upa. And so when that Greek spelling came to English, it was just spelled hypo. You know, typical crass American pronunciation. So, so hypo, so our word hypo, like hypothermia means not enough heat. It's, it's, it's not yet to the point. So anyway, so upa, so upa also mean, can be close to something, but not there. So, and ma means measure. That's where we get words like metric, et cetera, meter. So when you put two things close to each other, that's a Sanskrit word for measurement, for comparison. And so for the word upama, you get the word, and so the process of doing that is called opamya. And so atmopamya. So by comparing others to yourself, sarvatra everywhere. In other words, whoever you see, whomever you see, every living being, you compare them to yourself in the sense of feeling empathy. You see it, this person is like me. And therefore, if this person is in pain, then I also cannot be comfortable. And so in that sense, goodness is goodness. The problem of goodness in this world is it's not good enough. I mean, sometimes the devotees have the idea that there's like spiritual, spiritual platform, and then there's material goodness. They're two like very different things. But actually they're not. They're the same thing. The difference is that material goodness is not yet completely pure. It's like if you have water and the water has some, you know, contaminant, it's still water. It's just not pure water. So material goodness is pure good. It, it, it's still goodness. It's real goodness. It's just not pure. So for example, if I don't want people to go hungry, if I don't want people to be in pain, that's goodness. It's real goodness, but it's not pure. Because I don't realize that unless I give them spiritual consciousness, they're going to fall back into pain again. So what's the use of helping someone who's suffering if tomorrow they're going to be suffering again? You know, it's like those, it's like those little beetles. I, in Brazil, Brazil, if you, if you want to see literally hundreds of thousands of different kinds of insects and things. So there are these beetles. I was staying on the farm in, in Brazil, Novo Kula. And so you get these seasonal biblical plagues. 
like 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 one is the beetle plague. I, you know, I felt like saying, "Okay, the Hebrew slaves can leave Egypt. Just stop this." So it's like you wake up one morning and there's just like thousands and thousands of beetles everywhere you look. And what's funny about these beetles is they live a very short life and they flip onto their backs and they um, they flip onto their backs and they wiggle their legs like the beginning of Kafka's Metamorphosis, and they wiggle their legs. And so at first I was naive, so I, you know, I thought, ah, oh, poor beetle. So I put the beetle back on its legs, it takes two steps and flips. And so there are two kinds of people, people that want help and people that want attention. The people that want attention are bottomless pits that drain all your energy. And so my advice, focus your limited energy on people that actually want help. So, but then again, so if I say to someone, look, the real problem is that we're in the material world, that we have this karma, that we have these bodies. So if you never want to suffer again, if you really want to be happy forever, this is what you need to do. And if the person says, well, I don't want to do it. I mean, it's not that I don't care about the person. I'll still try to help if I can. But um, so material goodness is goodness. So our June's compassion was goodness. And therefore, it's mentioned. So you don't think he has some lesser motive. But because he had forgotten Krishna and forgotten his own soul, he wasn't giving people the, the full quality product. You know, he felt sorry for these people, but he wasn't really going to help them because even if he didn't fight, they'd die anyway, and then God knows what would happen. So it was goodness, but not, not pure goodness. Got it. Very clear. Thank you so much. Pleasure. So we'll stop here unless uh, someone has an offer I can't refuse. <laughs> so thank you very much. It's really, um, I guess I'm like everybody else, you know, if I showed up and I was the only person here, it'd be kind of <laughs> discouraging. So, so thank you very much for coming. And I hope to see you again. And thank you for attending Baby Yoga Scott's talent. <laughs> <laughs> I want, when I say three, everyone hit your red button. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> right. Dave, thank you so much. Let's give another round of applause. <laughs>